Hello, fellow teachers and students of the scriptures. Welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox, and I want to thank you for joining me this week. My goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week, we're going to be studying John chapters 14 through 17. So if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. I'm going to be honest with you here by saying that this is a bit more of a challenging week to teach. And that's just because the chapters we cover this time are a little more doctrinally dense and the language a bit harder to grasp. That doesn't take away from their beauty or their power or their importance, but they do require a bit more focus, intensity, and pondering to really understand. In fact, uh, probably the best way to understand these chapters would be to go through them verse by verse. Now, unfortunately, that's not realistic if you're a teacher uh, to walk your students through it like that. And then we're, we're probably all going to be limited by either the 45 minutes of class time that we have on a Sunday or the, the short attention span of our families at home. So I found that one of the best ways to teach these particular chapters is to approach them thematically, identifying the major themes of the Savior's teachings and walking your class through examples of verses within the chapters that reveal those themes, which does require you to to jump around a bit between, between chapters. But as we do that, understand that these themes are all part of an interconnected whole and the, the ideas don't stand independent of each other. Jesus is going to weave them in and out all throughout the chapters, which are then going to culminate and climax into what's referred to as the great intercessory prayer in John chapter 17. So to, so to introduce these chapters to my students, I'd start by taking a quick classroom poll. And the question How do you like to give a talk in church? Which of the following methods are you most likely to use? How many of you are the type that just likes to get up and talk? Uh, You have a general idea of what you want to say, but you don't write anything down. It's just you and the pulpit. I know people like that. Okay, and how many of you are the type that likes to write out your entire talk and read it word for word. Maybe some of you like to do it that way. That's great. And then how many of you are the type that likes to have some notes, uh, an outline uh, of some of the things that you want to say, but that that you don't necessarily follow word for word? And, and, And I think that those are probably the most common methods that I've seen people use for giving talks. And There isn't one method that's better than any of the others. It's personal preference. For me, I'm a note card kind of speaker. I don't like to read word for word, but I I also don't like to go without anything, just in case my mind goes blank and, and I forget what I was wanting to share, which does seem to happen on occasion the older I get. So I just kind of make a a bullet list of the major points of my talk, and then if I get lost, I can just glance down at my outline and remember where I'm at. So when I read some of these longer discourses 
or talks that we find in the scriptures. Sometimes I try to guess what the note card might have looked like if the person in the scriptures had used one. And that's going to be our overall approach for these chapters this week. We're going to try and visualize Jesus's Last Supper Sermon note card. And as a teacher, you could give them this handout to take notes on as you walk them through the major themes of Jesus's teachings here. When they're done, they can place this handout in their scriptures for future reference. And I think that this can help to simplify this rather deep discussion that Jesus has with his apostles during the Last Supper and as they walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. So encourage them to to write these points down on the note card as you go. And you can also let your students know that as you go through the points, that you're going to do some kind of an activity for each one. So point number one, an identification or matching activity. Got a slide here with pictures of a number of different people on it. And can you tell what religion they practice based solely on the picture? How can you tell which of these people is Jewish? Which one is Muslim? Buddhist? How about Catholic? Amish? And then, and then which one is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Now, that probably wasn't too hard, I imagine. There are often exterior signs that we can point to that can help us to see and know what religion somebody practices, the way they dress, hairstyles, jewelry, even. Now, now this isn't a lesson on judging people based on their outward appearance. But Jesus had something to say about the defining characteristic of being one of his disciples. There was a distinguishing mark in his followers. that People would know his disciples by this defining trait. What is it? Maybe, maybe you could guess as to what it might be. Is it the way that they dress? The way that they speak? Is it by what they believe? Uh, that they believe in his resurrection, uh, the Bible, or baptism? Let's see. As you go through this entire discourse of Jesus, there is one big overall theme or word that you're going to notice probably more than anything else. It's the Christian trait that should stand out most in those who profess to be disciples of Christ. What is that trait? What is the word? I'm just going to display a large list of references. And then I like to see which of my students can identify it first. They They probably don't need to read every single one first. They'll probably get it pretty quick. But that word or a form of this word, appears in each one of these verses. And what is it? What attribute should most distinguish a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
love. Love is the defining trait of the disciple of Christ. This, above all else, should stand out to those around us. People should be able to watch us for for any amount of time and, and eventually come to the conclusion that person is a follower of Jesus because look at how loving they are. And I would take my students specifically to John chapter 13, verse 35, which makes this point most directly. And you may not even need to turn to that verse of scripture because they probably could already recite that verse word for word without even looking. There's a, a song that most of us probably learned in primary that quotes this verse. Maybe see if they can finish it. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. And how is it that they're going to know? If ye have love one to another. And that is point number one on Christ's note card. The world will recognize my disciples by this defining trait. Love. Now, now in this discourse, Jesus is going to talk about two different kinds of love that define his followers. I call them the two loves of the Last Supper. What are they? And the activity for this is what I would call crack at a snack. The person that can identify the two loves first gets a little treat. And you're going to reveal two references on the board, and their job is to be the first person to raise their hand and share the two loves. And here are the references that you'll show. John 13, 34 for the first love, and John 14, 15. What are the two loves? Love for each other, or, or love for your fellow man, and a love for Christ. So John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you that you also love one another. And what follows is the verse that we just read a second ago. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. And then John 14, 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. So Jesus is going to talk about and teach us about love for him. And because they're so deeply unified, by default, how we show love for the Father, for God. Because Christ and God are connected inseparably in, in, a, in a special way. Now, this shouldn't surprise us much because Jesus has already taught this principle back when he was asked by a lawyer which commandment was the greatest. And he answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So point number two on our note card. There are two kinds of love my disciples must possess. Love for each other and love for me. 
point number three now. And to introduce this portion, we're going to do a quick pair and share question. Pair up with a partner and share with them your answer to the following question. And just for fun, the person who was born the farthest away from where you are right then gets to share first. And the question is, what is love? Which of the following definitions of love do they most agree with and why? Love is physical attraction. Love is a feeling. Love is commitment. Love is respect. Love is security. Love is healthy communication. Love is equality. Love is acceptance. Love is patience. Love is service. Love is undefinable. Or love is blank. Feel free to choose your own word to define love. And of course, love can be all of these things. But which do they feel is the greatest manifestation of love and why? And after they've shared, perhaps you could have a few share their thoughts with the class. But as the teacher, I would want to make the following point. I imagine that most of them chose a word other than the first two on that list. Love is so much more than just physical attraction or a feeling. Love, as Jesus uses it here in the Last Supper, is, is used as a verb and not just a noun. And typically, even though I think most of us understand that idea, when we hear the word love, our minds seem to automatically jump to the noun definition of love. Love the feeling, the physical attraction that we might feel for somebody, or even the physical feeling of care and concern that we possess for a family member or a friend. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at here in the Last Supper. When the scriptures tell me that I need to love God and love my fellow man, it's not that I need to develop some feeling in my heart for them. I don't think that God is too concerned about me mustering up some feeling within my heart. It isn't something I need to manufacture uh, if it doesn't come naturally. Feelings can't be forced or controlled. They come involuntarily. But love in the way that Jesus uses it here is an action. It's doing something. Love is evident in the things that we do. So what actions do we take to show these two loves? Well, first, how do we show that we truly love each other? And, and here you can make the point that we already talked about this last week when we studied John chapter 13. Jesus did an object lesson to teach the apostles what love for others looks like. What did he do? He washed their feet. I show my love by humbly serving others. And this week, he's going to add another idea to this. And it's in John 15, 13. How else can we show love for others? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life 
for his friends. So what's the word that we use to describe something like that? Giving something up for someone else. Sacrifice. Sacrifice is another way that we show love for our fellow man. To even be willing to lay down our lives for them. And I think that that can mean much more than than dying for someone. There probably aren't going to be a lot of situations where someone is actually going to be put into a situation or position where they will choose to die for the benefit of another person. But this could also be being willing to lay down our own needs, desires, benefits, rewards for, for somebody else, like a parent for their child, a spouse for their partner, a member for another member, a missionary for an investigator, or a neighbor for a neighbor. We show our love by serving and sacrificing for others. Some examples of this kind of love. We show love for others when we serve in our church columns. When we extend a hand of fellowship to someone. We show love for others every time we wipe away a tear. Write a thank you note. Invite others to hear the gospel. Demonstrate patience with others or their problems. Every time we smile. Offer an encouraging word. Forgive somebody. Hold our tongue when we would be justified to speak sharply. Serving our fellow man is rarely demonstrated by big, conspicuous things. But it's more often shown in the small, unheralded, kind things that we do for each other. Love is a verb and not a noun. And and remember how Jesus put it earlier. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Or I might more directly say, if ye serve and sacrifice one to another. Joseph Smith had something interesting to say about this, this special love for others that Christ's true disciples possess. He said, There is a love from God that should be exercised toward those of our faith who walk uprightly, which is peculiar to itself. But it is without prejudice. That is, it is not just that birds of a feather flock together. It is divinely inspired love. It also gives scope to the mind, which enables us to conduct ourselves with greater liberality towards all that are not of our faith than what they exercise towards one another. These principles approximate nearer to the mind of God because it is like God or godly. Now, and what does that mean? Because of our particular understanding of Christ and his gospel, we have the ability to love people in a way that is, as Joseph says, peculiar to itself. It gives us the capacity to love others in a unique and special way. It enables us to conduct ourselves with great liberality towards all that are not of our faith than what they exercise towards one another. So, members of Christ's restored church have the ability to love Muslims 
in a way that is greater than the love which Muslims have for each other. We can love Jehovah's Witnesses greater than the Jehovah's Witnesses have amongst themselves, and Jews, and Baptists, and Catholics, and Hindus. We can love these people in a special, godlike, divinely inspired way. And hopefully that way is not just feelings, but by physical acts of service and sacrifice. So point number three on our note card, you show love for each other by service and sacrifice. Now, what about the other kind of love? Love for Christ or love for God? How do we show that? And there's a popular book out there that's been around for some time called The Five Love Languages. And do you know what they are? What are the five love languages? They're words of affirmation, physical touch, receiving gifts, quality time, and acts of service. Well, well, Jesus is going to teach us what his love language is. What is the greatest way that we can show that we have love for him or that we love the Father? And the activity we're going to do for this point involves a church video paired with a scripture search. So show them the following video with these two questions in mind. How did the grandma show love for her granddaughter? And how did the granddaughter show love for her grandmother? And, and then you show them the little video entitled, Going to Grandma's. I'll put a link to it here. And then after you've watched that and had a little discussion, ask them to look in the following verses for how Jesus taught this truth. We already know that his commandments are an expression of love for us. He's not trying to control us or take away our freedom. But what's the way that he prefers we show our love for him? And we can tell that he really wants us to understand this because he repeats it a number of times in this short amount of space. So John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And John fourteen twenty three, if a man love me, he will keep my words. So what is it? What is Christ's love language? Obedience. Keeping his commandments is the way that we show that we love him. One of, the, one of the shortest but most well-known scriptures out there. If you love me, keep my commandments. So, obey him. Love is a verb. Let him buckle you up in the safety of his divine guidance. And stay buckled. Point number four, then, is you show love for me by keeping my commandments. Point number five. We know that Jesus stands as the greatest example of all virtues, and he'd never ask us to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself first. As he says in John 13, 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So here in this last supper discourse, 
Jesus is going to show us how he has demonstrated both kinds of love. And for this portion, to keep things moving, I just present this as the teaching. I just walk them through it. And the activity for this point is going to come a little bit later. So first, how did Jesus show his love for God, love for his Father? Is there any evidence of Jesus showing this kind of love in these chapters? Yes, uh, John fifteen ten. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And we decided that the best way to show love for God was through obedience. Jesus was also obedient to his Father in all respects. In fact, he's the ultimate example of obedience, isn't he? He was perfectly obedient to his Father's will all throughout his life. And then John 14, 31. It's very direct here. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Oh, goosebumps there. Do you understand what he's referring to here? It's like he says, I want the world to know just how much I love my father. And I know the way to show my love for him. I obey his will. Therefore, since he has given me this commandment, even so I do. Arise and let us go hence. Where are they going? What's the location that he's inviting them to follow him to? Gethsemane. And you can almost sense the determination in his voice and see the resolve in his eyes as he looks out the door towards Gethsemane and says, Arise, let us go hence. I'm ready to go and suffer for the sins and sorrows of all mankind just as my Father has commanded me to do. And off they walk towards the garden, only him understanding exactly what he was about to undergo. What about his love for his fellow man? Remember John thirteen thirty four, As he gives them the new commandment to love one another, he adds this qualification as I have loved you. I want you to show love for others in the same way that I've shown it. And he does. In fact, that's a great way to read all of these chapters. Just go through John chapters 13 through 17 and look for all the ways in which Jesus showed love for his apostles. First, just look at the way that John introduces the entire sermon in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Well, we too must love others unto the end. Unto the end of our lives, regardless of what pains and trials 
and betrayals we may have to endure. And then also in chapter 13, Jesus washes each of the apostles' feet. As we already said, we show our love by serving others selflessly and humbly. But what does Jesus do for the apostles in John chapter 17? Specifically, look at verse 9. If we wish to love others as Jesus loved them, then we must pray for others. Hopefully, our prayers are not just geared towards our own needs and our own well-being, but the needs and well-being of other people too. And then finally, probably the greatest way Jesus demonstrated love for his fellow man can be deduced from what he taught his disciples about the greatest way to demonstrate love for others. Remember what he said in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Did Jesus demonstrate his love for others in, in that way? Yes, yes, he did. His atonement demonstrates this greater love. He literally laid down his life for his friends, his apostles, and all of us. He overcame sin and death for us by laying down his own life. He is the ultimate example of this greatest show of love. Therefore, in a beautiful and profound way, the atonement of Jesus Christ stands as the greatest fulfillment and the greatest example of both loves. It was the greatest act of service and sacrifice and the greatest act of obedience in all of human history. And then there's another quality of the Savior's love for others demonstrated here and indeed throughout the entire last 24 hours of his life that I'd like to dig a little deeper into here. And here's where the activity comes into play as well. And I'd like to introduce this idea with a question. Of all the people in Jerusalem that night, who do you feel was probably the most in need of comfort, reassurance, encouragement, and support from loving friends? The obvious answer would be Jesus himself. We know that this was an incredibly difficult time for him. He even tells us as much. Look in the following verses. In John 12, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. In John 13, 21, we learn, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit. And I think that we can deduce why. Just, just think of what must have been going through his mind at this time. The things that he knew. He knew that Judas, one of his beloved apostles, would betray him. He knew that all of his apostles would be offended because of him and would be scattered that night. Mark 14, 27. He knew that Peter, the rock, would deny him three times within the coming hours. John 13, 38. 
And besides all this, the weight of his hour of sacrifice was beginning to settle on his soul. And he knew that shortly the sins and sorrows of the entire world would begin to press upon him with astonishing magnitude. Mark tells us that as that hour approached, he began to be sore amazed. Mark 14.33 or, or that means that it was harder to bear than even he expected it to be. I mean, it's going to be so hard that he's going to plead with his father if there be any way that that cup could be passed from him. He's going to suffer so greatly that he'll tremble because of pain, and it will cause blood to drip from every pore. And then following all of that, he knows that he's going to suffer the pains of mocking, scourging, and ultimately crucifixion. One of the cruelest forms of torture or execution. All of that before the sun would set the next night. And yet, just look at what he does throughout those hours, throughout that pain and suffering. And, and to discover this, I like to do this as a secret phrase activity. I just like to highlight some of the things that Jesus says during the last 24 hours of his life that, that just amazes me. Fill in the boxes with the correct words and then match the numbered boxes with the letters placed in them to discover the secret phrase. These first answers here all come from what Jesus said to his apostles during the Last Supper sermon. From John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. John 14, 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. John 16, 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Now as we're reading these, just keep in mind, remember, who is it that would need the most comfort, reassurance, and support at this time? John sixteen thirty three, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And, and then to continue with this thought, watch what Jesus continues to do as the excruciatingly painful last hours of his life unfold. In the garden at the arrest, he appeals for the freedom of his disciples. John 18, 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. When Peter cuts off the ear of the arresting officer Malchus, what does Jesus do? Luke twenty-two fifty-one, And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. To Pontius Pilate in John nineteen eleven, He that 
delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And then as he hung in agony from the cross, in the midst of torturous pain, regarding the Roman soldiers that are carrying out the crucifixion, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the thief crucified next to him, Luke 23, 43, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And to Mary, his mother, in John 19, 26 through 27, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. Or in other words, John, I need you to take care of my mom now that I'm gone. And maybe before you even read the secret phrase, you might ask, did you notice what Jesus did all throughout the midst of his great suffering? Where is his focus? <laughs> and remember that all of all the people in Jerusalem that night, who was most in need of comfort? But who is comforting who? Jesus is turning his thoughts and his concerns outward. Though he was the one who most needed it, he's the one that's offering comfort and support and reassurance. I think that Jesus understood something about suffering. One of the best ways to alleviate your own suffering is to seek to alleviate the suffering of others. Our secret phrase then, comfort comes to those who comfort others. So, so how can we love as Christ loved? We can seek to bring peace and comfort and reassurance and support to others, even at those moments when we're not experiencing it ourselves. So, so as I said, Jesus is the greatest example of both loves here at the Last Supper. So point number five, I want you to show these loves to others in the same way that I have shown them unto you. And now point number six, and I'll just tell you what this is right out the gate. I have great blessings in store for those who possess these two loves. So now we're going to take a look at the blessings, the results, the promises to those who develop and possess these two loves in their lives. And I'm going to give you a list of verses, and I want you to identify and mark them all. Jesus always promises great things to those who do what he asks. So what are the promises? And you could do this portion of the lesson as, as a little game for an activity, if you like. And I call the game face-off. Divide your class into two teams, and for each round, they'll send one person up to represent their team. And it's got to be a different person every time until everybody has had a turn. But they come up, and either on the board or on a table, you'll have a collection of cards with the different blessings printed on them. You'll shout out a scripture reference from John 13 through 17 with a blessing in it. 
and their job is to locate the correct matching blessing and grab the card first. Now, that person that comes forward is welcome to bring their scriptures for help at the front so that they can look for it. And their team is also encouraged and allowed to help them as well and to shout out suggestions to them. And a point is given each time to the team that grabs the correct card first. And whichever team collects the most cards by the end of the game wins. And and in my version of the game, I always include some blessings that are not found in these chapters so as to keep the game challenging all the way to the end. And as each blessing is highlighted, I might take the cards up to the board or put them on the wall under the title, The Blessings of the Two Loves. And so what are these promised blessings of showing Christ-like love? 13, 17, happiness. 14, 2 through 3, Christ will go and prepare a place for us in heaven. 14, 18, comfort. 14, 21, we will receive the love of the fall. 14.23, the presence of Jesus and the Father will abide with us. 14.27, peace. 15.3, he'll make us clean. 15.11, we'll experience a fullness of joy. 15.14, we become a friend of Christ. And maybe just a quick comment on that one. Uh, Christ calling us his friends. Pair that thought with the verse that follows. Uh, verse 15, where Jesus says, Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. You see, that's the kind of relationship that Christ wants us to have with him. He doesn't want us to just be servants. He wants us to be friends. It's like if you've ever taught the youth before, you know that it's not always easy to get them to behave and to be respectful so that they can learn and be blessed by the message of the scriptures. And so we might employ all kinds of different techniques to help them to behave. We might offer them a reward. Hey, I'll bring you donuts if you're good. Or we threaten punishment. If you don't behave, I'll have to call your parents. Or maybe we even get to the point where we shed some tears or or plead or beg them to be good. And they're good out of a sense of pity for us. But I'm sure that every teacher out there would prefer their classes to behave because they love us, respect us, or see us as a friend. We want them to be motivated by more than bribery, fear, or pity. Now, now God does use all of these motivations in his plan in some way as well. Reward, punishment, and pleading. But I believe that God would prefer us all to get to the point where we obey and follow him because we see ourselves as his friends, not just 
his servants. Another blessing. 1526. He'll send us the Comforter or the Holy Ghost to help us. And you know, that point could be an entire lesson in and of itself from these chapters. That's another theme from these chapters. Jesus has a lot to teach us about the Holy Ghost. And, and perhaps just a quick summary of those things. What does the Holy Ghost do for us? 1526, he comforts us. Also, he testifies of the fall. In 16.8, he reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So, he helps us to judge between sin and righteousness and to choose the right. 16.13, he guides us into all truth and he can show us of things to come. And 16.14, he glorifies Christ. So, so this ends up being one of the greatest blessings of possessing these two loves. We get all the benefits and help that come through the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the presence of the Holy Ghost comes to us naturally when we're showing those two loves. And then one more, another one of the most famous verses of Scripture in this week's block. John 17, 3 eternal life. And this verse explains to us what eternal life really is. It defines it. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's what eternal life is all about, knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. The more I seek to know them, understand them, spend time with them, love them, serve them, obey them. The closer I get to experiencing what eternal life is all about. And then the culmination of blessings that seeking to become one with God in this life brings me is the promise of a future oneness with them in the world to come. And that's another thing that you can see throughout these chapters that we we didn't really have time to examine in depth. But there is the theme of oneness or unity with God. Jesus emphasizes here that he is one in work, will, personality, character, and purpose with the Father. And, and not some mystical, literal unity. But Christ desires that we experience that same kind of unity with them. And we can begin to experience that here in this life uh, as we seek to know them. And then more literally, in presence with them in the world to come. That's what eternal life means, to live forever with God and Jesus Christ. Like he said in chapter 14, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. <laughs> so therefore, in short, brothers and sisters, the blessings of living and showing the two loves are so worth it. More than worth it. Look at that list that we just created. 
that they speak to the very purpose and objective of our entire mortal experience. They are the way back to God. Therefore, all of these themes are going to culminate in John chapter 17, in what we call the great intercessory prayer. Intercessory meaning pleading in behalf of someone in trouble. And that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to plead on behalf of, of his apostles and all of us. And this is, this is really a, a very special chapter. And it's one of those chapters that doesn't need much by the way of commentary. It's a prayer, after all. And, and it's an excellent way to conclude your lesson. You might ask your students what they think it would be like to hear Jesus say a prayer for them. That'd be pretty special, wouldn't it? Well, that's exactly what they're going to get to experience here. Because he is going to pray for them. And not just in a metaphorical, figurative, or liken the scriptures kind of way. No, Jesus is literally going to pray for them in this chapter. You can see that in verse 20, where he says, Neither pray I for these alone, referring to his apostles, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Not just praying for my apostles, but for everybody who believes what they say. So if you and I believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel, then this prayer includes us. So the way I like to, to do this is, is to just let my students hear it. I either read it to them, as I'm going to do for you here, or I play a recording of it from the church's scripture website. But as you listen, look for evidence of all the themes that we've just discussed. You can see almost all of them interwoven throughout the intercessory prayer. So look for the themes of love, service and sacrifice, obedience, comfort, and eternal life or oneness with God and Christ. See if you can pick them out. And, and pay attention to how you feel as you listen to our Lord and Savior pray for us. And if you have time in class, you can encourage them to pick their favorite verse from the prayer and share why they found it insightful. So here we go. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of this world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. 
Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and I will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now that's beautiful, isn't it? Did, did you catch the themes as we went through? They're all there. Now if I had to boil this all down into one simple statement of truth, here's how I would put it. If I demonstrate a love for God through obedience and a love for my fellow man through service and sacrifice, then I will be greatly blessed and gain eternal life. Now, I know there's a whole lot more that goes into that statement, but that, that may be the best way I can think of to summarize it. And to liken the scriptures as they consider the board where all the blessings of the two loves are listed, which of those blessings do they desire most and why? 
And then which of the two loves do you need to work on most this week? And what can you do to either serve and sacrifice more or be more obedient to the Father's will? And you know, I hope that you felt the spirit of these sacred chapters here. And what makes them so special to me is that they kind of act as a window into the Savior's soul. It's, it's this conversation with his closest of friends at the most difficult part of his life that's so personal and so private that we're fortunate that we even get a chance to read it, be a part of it. It really allows us to look into the deepest, innermost parts of Jesus Christ's spirit. And at the center of it, at his very core, what did we find? love. Jesus Christ is love personified. And I wish to bear witness of that love. I know he loves me. And I know he loves you. And I also know that he loves his father. And his love is characterized by action. Jesus Christ loves as a verb and not just a name. And that will conclude our lesson for this week. I really hope that that was helpful to you in some way this week. And I, and I hope you felt the spirit as we, as we studied deeply this this last discourse of our Savior Jesus Christ. If you did find it helpful, I encourage you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Teachers, if you're interested in resources for teaching, go to teachingwithpower.com. You'll find links to those. Thank you, everyone, so much for watching, and I hope that you'll join me again next week. Now get out there and teach with power.